We've been taking a few weeks to look into the gospel as we kind of prepare for Easter and Palm Sunday. And as we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, we started off explaining that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We then talked about what it is that we're saved from and how we aren't just saved from loneliness and we're not just saved from the sadness or the pains of this world, but that actually we are saved from the wrath of God. And this morning, what I'd like to do is look a little more closely at salvation. And I have a hope this morning that for those of us who have accepted Christ, those of us who are born again, that we would leave today with a better understanding and a greater appreciation of what has been done for us, uh, of what has been provided for us. Because we so often think of our salvation in such limited terms. When we look at what the Bible says about our salvation, we look at what the Bible says about our deliverance, it is majestic, it is holy, it is good, it is something so far greater than oftentimes we understand. And so my hope today is that we leave this morning better understanding the salvation that we enjoy and that in doing so we bring honor and glory to our Father. Um, as we look into the scriptures today, and as you peruse the scriptures, you'll find over and over and over again that there are metaphors used involving agriculture, involving farming, and, and there's all kinds of applications you can make as you watch things grow from the soil, the harvest that comes in autumn, sowing seeds on fertile ground. And really, when you look at the gospel and you look at the salvation that we enjoy, the the, the analogy of a farmer planting in a field is so applicable. You think of a farmer that has already spent his time preparing the field and sowing seed, and then he sits in the midst of his field looking at all of the vegetation as it's growing and as it's producing, and he's looking forward to a harvest. He's looking forward to something that's going to be collected. He's looking forward to a benefit of all of this work that he has done. And you can see that as he sits there, that from his perspective in his field, you know, the crops that he is growing, both his farming has involved past effort, it's involving a present production that's taking place, and also a future hope and a harvest that's going to come. And our salvation is the same way. So oftentimes we look at our salvation in kind of one way. We think of ourselves in the past tense. You know, oh, I've been saved, or I was saved. We ask the question all the time, you know, when were you saved? When did you come to Christ? As though it's this thing that happened a long time ago, and it's kind of over and done with. But as we're going to see today, that's not how the apostles dealt with the issue of salvation. It wasn't just a past event, but no, it, had, it was a, a past event. It is a present reality and an ongoing salvation that we enjoy. And also, there is a future aspect to our salvation. If you look through the scriptures, the apostles will talk about us having been saved. They talk about us being saved, and they talk about how one day we will be saved. And you kind of sit there and think to yourself, well, which is it? Is it that I was saved, am I being saved, or is it that I will be saved one day? And the truth of the scripture is, it's all three. We have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. And we're going to see that today as we look at a few different passages 
of Scripture. I invite you to open your Bibles first and foremost to 2 Timothy chapter 1. In the book of Timothy, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy as he goes to take up the church in Ephesus. He's going to be leading them, and Paul has all kinds of advice for what it is for him to be a pastor, what it is for him to be a leader of the church. And what we see in this passage here is that Paul begins to talk about this idea of salvation as something that has already taken place. He reads in 2 in Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, the text says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So you notice here as Paul's talking, he's using lots and lots of past tense verbs. He's sitting there talking about how we have been saved and we have been called to a holy calling. In Paul's mind here, as he's talking to Timothy, he's encouraging him and assuring him that this salvation that has been given to us is something that's already been done. It's already been accomplished. There's no earning it. There's no striving for it. There's no fretting about it. There's no worrying about it because it is done. But you know, the miraculous thing about what Paul is telling Timothy in this passage is not just the fact that it's already been accomplished, but when was it accomplished? If we sit and we think of the past of our salvation and our salvation already being a finished, completed event, we oftentimes think that, oh yeah, I was saved on the day that I accepted Christ. Or maybe we go back a little farther and we say, you know what, my salvation was secured 2,000 years ago on the cross. But our salvation is more miraculous than that. Because look what Paul says about the grace that we have been given. It says in verse 9, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, what that tells us is that God decided before the ages began that he would send his son. You know, oftentimes we think of the fact that you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and here they took the tree from the knowledge of good and evil, and there they sinned, and there they fell. And sometimes we have this picture of God looking at that moment and saying, oh no, what am I going to do? Like, oh, it's all gone wrong, everything's ruined, I better do something about it. Oh, I know, plan B, send Jesus. That's not the case in the Bible. Before the ages began, before the world was created, before there was a garden, before there was an Adam and Eve, before there was any sin in the world, God already chose to send his son. The whole purpose of the creation is his son, Jesus Christ. And before he made any one of us, and before he made anything in this world, God decided that he would send his son to die and save his people. And that's exactly what he did. And, 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 you know, because it's God, when he decides to do something, it's as good as done. 
You know, we make decisions all the time that affect something that's going to happen at a later date. Uh, just this past week, uh, as we were talking at our house, we realized that, you know, it's been a while since my wife's had an eye doctor appointment. And so we're calling around looking for an eye doctor, and we decide, hey, we're going to make an appointment in Vernal. And so we've got an appointment for this coming week to go to Vernal for an eye appointment. Decided that, hey, while we're there and doing that, you know, Nate and I could probably use a haircut right about now. So we're going to get that done too. So we decided, hey, we're going to go into Vernal this week, and we're going to get these things done. And it's that decision that makes sure that that event takes place. Now, the difference between me and God is that between now and when that appointment is, a lot of things that can happen that can disrupt my plans. But with God, nothing disrupts his plan. Nothing thwarts his purposes. The Lord gets what he wants. And so therefore, when God decided in ages past that he would redeem, justify, and save his church, it's as good as done. And then what happens? Well, the scripture continues on, and it says in verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. He's saying, listen, first and foremost, your salvation isn't based on anything you did. God decided that for you a long time ago, before the ages began. And then God enacted his plan of salvation to redeem his church as he sent Jesus Christ in the fullness of time to die on the cross, taking the penalty for our sin. So whichever way you look at it here, your salvation is secure. Because it's not based on your effort. It's not based on your ability. It's not based on anything you've done. It's based on the decree and the love of God and the sacrifice that has been made in Jesus Christ. In his shed blood, we are saved. And so we see that there in that aspect of it, our salvation is a past event. We have been given the right to become children of God, as it says in John chapter 1. We have been given forgiveness of sin. We have been justified because of what Christ has already completed. It's done, it's finished, it's over. And yet, the Bible also talks about our salvation being as something that's going to happen one day in the future. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. The book of Romans is one of the greatest uh, full expressions of Paul's theology as we look at what he believes, what he thinks about the gospel. And we see in Romans chapter 5 that Paul now begins to talk about the salvation that we enjoy as something that hasn't happened yet, but is going to happen at some point in the future. We see in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So understand here what Paul is communicating. He's saying that, yeah, there's something that happened in the past. We were justified. And that's a really important word in the Bible. When Paul says we are justified, what it really means is that 
God has declared that we are innocent. And understand what that does not mean is that God looked at us in our sin, God looked at us in our fault and said, yes, they're guilty, yes, they're sinful, but I'm going to ignore it. Or but I'm just going to forgive it and let it slide. That's not what justified means. It means that when God looked at the evidence of our life and when God looked at who we were and he looked at the record book of our right and our wrong, that he looks at it and he sees no sin. Now, how could that be? Because I don't know about you, but like I'm pretty sinful. All of us are pretty sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are wretched. Our righteousness is filthy rags to him. The scripture is so clear on our depravity and our shortcoming. How could it be that when he opens the book of life, when he opens the record and looks at the evidence that we have, that he sees no guilt? It's because our guilt has been given to Jesus. See, God doesn't just forget our sin. God doesn't just sit there and say, I'm going to let it slide. He says, no, you truly are innocent, and I declare it so because Christ has paid the penalty. The scripture says that he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It also says he remembers our sin no more because it's been put to death in Jesus. That's a done deal. So then what does Paul mean when he says that since now we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? See, here he talks about a future event, a future salvation that's going to take place. So what he's talking about is that one day there is going to be a judgment of the world. We talked about last week God's wrath against sin, his hatred against sin. And one day God's wrath is going to be poured out against sin in this world. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, you're hopeless. If you are not in Christ Jesus, there's nothing you can do to escape that coming wrath. It is heading your way. It is inevitable. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, one day when that day of judgment comes, we will be spared. And why will we be spared? And how will we be spared? Well, Paul iterates it here in this verse. He says, that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, this is a phrase that we toss around a lot in church. Oh, it's Christ who lives in me, and it's because he lives that therefore that now I can live. But what is it about the fact that Christ was raised from the dead that is so important to us? Yes, it gives us a hope that one day we will be raised from the dead too, but guess what? The Bible says that the sea will give up its dead and Hades will give up its dead. And even those who are resurrected that way will still face judgment to be thrown into the lake of fire. There's a resurrection for all people, but not all people will live eternally in heaven. So what is it about the life of Christ that is so important for us? It's because Christ is still doing a work on our behalf now, into the future, and forever. And we see the work that he is doing as he lives at the right hand of God in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
If you look at the book of Hebrews as a whole, it talks over and over and over about how Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And in the Old Testament, the high priest would enter into the temple to make sacrifice and atonement for sin for the people of Israel. And the high priest would intercede for God's people. And now that is what Christ does for us. So understand the picture that is being painted is that one day we will all stand before God in judgment. And as we stand before God, Jesus Christ will go before us and he will intercede on our behalf. And as the wrath of God is getting ready to roll out against sin and against humanity and against all those who are found outside of him, Christ will stand in our path and he will say, no, these people belong to me because they've been purchased with my blood. And just as in the Old Testament exodus, the angel of death passed over the homes who had their doorposts painted with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, so we, covered in the blood of Christ, cleansed of our sin, the wrath of God will pass over us. And we will be ushered in to eternity with him, to a place where there is no more pain, no more death, no more mourning, where every tear is wiped away. That's the future that we hold. See, our past justification and the past forgiveness of sin declared from ages past, manifested in the cross of Jesus Christ, has now secured for us an eternal future in which we will escape and be saved, delivered from the very wrath of God. That's good news for us. You know, it reminds me, when, when I was in high school, I took a class, AP English, and we had a teacher who, who was just absolutely wonderful. We loved this teacher. Did not work nearly hard enough for this high school teacher that I had. He was phenomenal. Uh, but as we were going through this course and as we were going through this class, man, English was probably not my favorite subject in school. But I worked harder for Mr. Felton than probably I worked for any other teacher in my high school career because we just loved him. And we would read, and we would write, and we would prepare. And all of a sudden, doing all that work in that AP class, we took this test at the end of the year, the AP exam. And, and you know, you got certain credits for college depending on how it was that you did on that test. Well, I remember I took the test in my junior year of high school, totally forgot about it. And then all of a sudden, I went off to go and apply for college. And I'm sitting there signing up for classes. And the advisor sits there, and he looks at me and says, oh, well, I see that you took the AP exam. You scored a 5 on your English test. And so therefore, you don't have to take ENC 1101. ENC 1101 is like the basic class that every freshman has to take to learn how to write, to learn how to do research, to learn how to basically be successful in the rest of your college career. And they said, oh, guess what? Because of this thing that you did a year ago, you don't have to take this class anymore. You get out of it. You can just kind of move on. And see, that's what's been done for us, except for the fact that our escaping the wrath of God isn't based on how well we did. It's based completely on how well Christ has done for us. Because in his perfection, he died and became sin for us so that we can escape the wrath of God. So we have a, a past justification, a past fulfillment, a, a past salvation that has been enjoyed, the forgiveness of sin, becoming God's children, justified, redeemed, forgiven. 
We also have a future hope that one day we're going to escape the wrath that is to come. We're going to escape judgment and enter into eternity. So is that kind of all it is? For us as Christians, have we now been saved for something we're going to hope for later, but now here we are in between just kind of biding time, waiting, treading water? Absolutely not. The scripture speaks very clearly that our salvation is a present, continual, ongoing process in our very lives. You open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1.18. The text here says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here... We see Paul talking about it not in the past tense, not in the future tense, but in the present tense. We are being saved presently, right now, ongoing in our lives. How is it that we are being saved? I mean, I can understand the idea that I was saved, and that's going to help me escape a future judgment, but what do you mean I'm being saved now? See, in the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. It was secured for us. It was done. That punishment went to Jesus, not us. In the future, one day when we are glorified, one day when we stand before him perfect, holy, and clean, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. It will not be anywhere near us. It won't touch us. It won't taint our thought. It won't taint our speech. It'll be gone, eradicated, and finished. And right now, as we live here and now, we are being saved from the very practice of sin itself. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, Peter here says something about the salvation we enjoy and what has been done for us that should both cause every born-again Christian to rejoice and every person outside of Christ to tremble. Because the text here says in verse 17, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice what it says we were ransomed from. The scripture doesn't say we were ransomed away from the devil. The scripture doesn't say we were ransomed away from the penalty or the consequence of sin. But what it actually says is that we were ransomed away from our feudal ways, inherited by our forefathers. Our feudal ways, literally living like this world, living in the flesh, living in sin, pursuing financial wealth, pursuing personal security, pursuing anything else but the glory and honor of Christ. The scripture says we were ransomed away from those things. So understand the picture here that Peter is trying to paint for us. There's three characters in this analogy that he uses. There is Christ Jesus, there is the church, and there is the feudal way of living in the flesh and in sin. And the picture that's being painted is, is that Christ's church was being held by feudal ways. Christ's church is being held captive by sin. And then Christ comes and he pays a ransom to set his people free. So now, what happens when you pay the ransom? 
Do you pay the ransom so that the one you paid to rescue can continue to live in the arms of their captors? No, of course not. You pay the ransom so that the one who you paid for can be set free and let go. And again, we're not talking about just the penalty here. We're talking about the very way we live itself. As Christ Jesus paid the ransom for us, we are set free from the power of feudal living. We are set free from the practice of sin which means that as we step forward, we live a life that is different, a life that has changed, a life that has been radically transformed in so many ways. And what does the scripture say right before that? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. See, as we live this life and we claim the name Christian, it should mean something as to how we live. Because when Christ makes the purchase with his blood, he gets what he paid for. See, one of the problems we have in the church in general is that we believe that we can repeat the words of a prayer, that we can come to church, that we can call upon the name of Jesus and then live however we want to live and expect that we're going to be okay on judgment day. When the Bible is very clear that those who belong to Christ and those who are saved by him are changed, transformed, and born again, you can't separate those things. When we come to Christ, the Bible says that we are a new creation. Jesus also says that, listen, if you love me, you obey my commandments. If you have my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. Jesus also looked at his disciples and he said, you know, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit and bad trees are cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus also looked at his people and said, listen, this is how you're going to know who my followers are and this is how you're going to know who my people are, the way they love each other. See, we are given external signs for an internal transformation that has taken place. And here's the key. It happens every single time. Now, as we live our lives, does that mean that we are suddenly free from every sinful thought, every sinful attitude, that we never stumble and that we never fall? No, of course not. We are fallen creatures. We are bent towards sin. But here's what it does mean, is that as you live your life, you can't be happy and content with sin anymore. You can't come to church on a Sunday morning, sing praises to our Lord, read his holy scripture, and then go off and live however you want and be okay with it. No, the born-again Christian receives conviction from the Holy Spirit, transformation and change, so that our very appetites begin to change. And I think the problem that we realize in the church a lot of times is that we don't like to preach holiness. We like to preach salvation, and we like to preach grace, and we like to preach forgiveness, but we don't preach holy living. 
Because if we preached holy living and we actually expected that transformation to mean something in the hearts and lives of Christians, we would realize something. That there are a lot of people walking around as cultural Christians who come to church because it's a tradition, who come to church because it's just something they've always done with their family, who come to church because maybe they just think it's the right thing to do and that's kind of what they should be doing for their kids. And yet they sit here untransformed, unchanged, because they are unsaved and they're unredeemed. And as we look at our lives and we look at the way we live, we need to understand and realize that our salvation has a present transforming reality in our hearts and lives. We should be different. We should live differently. And it's what's expected of us as Christians. We can't come and say to ourselves, well, I said a prayer when I was eight years old and I repeated the words of someone who sat with me, and so therefore, I'm okay. Because that's not what salvation is. We can't sit there and say, but you know, I've come to church once a week for the past 25 years and I read my Bible, so I must be okay. Because that's not what salvation is. We can't come and say, but you know what, my parents were Christians, and so therefore I was raised in a Christian home, so I must be okay, because that's not what salvation is. No, salvation is the realization that you are in desperate need of a Savior. You acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only way that you can be cleansed and the only way you can be forgiven, and then what does the Bible say to do? Repent and believe the gospel. See, we misunderstand the word repent. We think the word repent means to come and say, wow, I know that what I did was wrong, and I feel really bad about it. And we think that to repent means to say, I'm sorry. But that's not biblical repentance. Now, biblical repentance is to realize that the way we live is vile and detestable to the Lord that the things that we engage in and the things that we take pleasure in are abhorrent to him. And then literally, to put them away, never to touch them again. If you have a sin that you are struggling with, and you have a sin that you keep going back to time and time again, and maybe you feel bad, and maybe you feel regretful, and you know that it's wrong, you know it's something you shouldn't do, but you keep picking it back up, you haven't repented of it yet. You might feel bad, you might feel sorry, but you haven't undergone repentance. And see, we need to reach the point in our faith and our understanding of the Bible that when we say that we have been saved and we have been ransomed away from those futile ways, we need to believe that the power of the purchase of Christ is real, effective, and evident in our lives and causes us to live differently. So that when we then approach those sins and we approach those habits and we approach those things, that there is a fear of the Lord as we live out our days in exile. That there is a fear of the Lord to say, you know what? The wage of sin is death, and therefore I'm not going to touch this thing again. Now all of this is laid out progressively in our lives as Christians. There is no quick fix that all of a sudden you say a prayer and you wake up and you're just like Jesus, sinless and free. That's not what happens. But 
if there isn't a progression of holiness in our lives, if there is no transformation, if there is no change, if there is no progression stepping towards being more like Jesus, something is wrong. If we don't have a moment in our lives where we say to ourselves, you know what, I need to be doing more and I need to be doing better and the way I live is important. Then we need to ask ourselves, as the scripture tells us to, test yourself, see whether you be in the faith. And so I hope that as we sit here today that that we have one or two responses to these things. I hope first and foremost for those of us who are saved, for those of us who are born again, for those of us who have been redeemed and justified and forgiven and find ourselves in Christ, I hope we marvel at our salvation. The fact that, that our past justification and redemption is now causing real transformation in our hearts and lives, causing us to live like Christ. And in doing so, one day we will see that Christ stands before us, interceding on our behalf, standing in the way of the wrath of God, and we will enter into eternity. That's marvelous. We should sing about it every day. We should thank God for it every day. We should rejoice in it every day. And for those of us here who are outside of Christ, for those of us who have been playing church, for those of us who have been coming week after week, and yet we don't know the redemptive, transforming power of the cross, then I pray that the Lord would use these words and these scriptures to awaken your heart, to call you to repent of your sin, putting it down once and for all, and turn your face towards Jesus and the cross and be saved. Because that's the only hope we have. It's the reason that he came to this place. It's the reason he walked into Jerusalem triumphant, because he was winning the battle over sin. It is the reason he died and suffered on the cross. Because from ages past, God declared that he would save his church. And he did so by sending his son so that in the present we would be transformed and changed and so that in the future we would be saved and delivered by him, for him, through him, and all glory be to his name. We should be thankful for this miraculous thing that has been done for us. Let's pray together and give thanks to God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that you provide. We thank you that you haven't left us in our futile way of living, but you have delivered us from it. Sin has no power over us, Lord. Sin has no sway over us who walk in the Spirit. And yes, we stumble, and yes, we fall, but in those moments, like a good father, you discipline us and you bring us back into your fold. Thank you that you haven't left us alone. Thank you that you haven't left us to suffer and die. But instead, in the most wonderful, beautiful act of grace that anyone could ever imagine, you sent your son. He died in our place so that we may be forgiven, so that we may be justified, so that we may be redeemed. And as we sit now, we are thankful We are overjoyed at the future 
that we have, all wrapped up in Jesus. And we thank you. We love you. And we praise you in his precious name. Amen.